the passage that we're going to be looking at today as we move through 1 Timothy is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. If you are using the Bible that's being distributed to you, that looks like this, it's on page 991. Page 991. I also want to mention to you, if you don't have a Bible, this Bible is our gift to you. So if you don't have one at home that you can read through, you're welcome to take this home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's scripture for yourself. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. It had said, I desire, and then pricking up in verse 9, I desire likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You can be seated as we pray. Father, at some level we have already prayed our prayer. Show us Christ through the preaching of your word. Shine light into our darkness. Shape us and mold us based on what you've said. This is a prayer for your spirit to be working. So together we are asking for the work of your spirit in our midst through the sword of the spirit, which is your word. We need it. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Help me as I preach. May my words be faithful to what you have said. May I be a good messenger, not importing my own ideas. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been told, shut up and listen? I have. Maybe it doesn't surprise you. Sometimes, my wife's the only one who laughs. (laughs) Perfect. We'll talk about that later, honey. Um, not always with those exact words, but it does leave you feeling a certain way when that kind of sentiment is expressed. Kind of feel like, am I really valued here? Are, are, are my ideas and thoughts like important to anybody? It can be hard to hear such words. But the most memorable time those, that sentiment was expressed to me, I had none of those feelings. It was actually really helpful. Because the person who expressed them to me at that time was someone I knew cared for me. I knew they valued me in the way I thought. They just saw a bigger picture, could see what was going on, and were giving me counsel that I knew was good for me. And I was grateful for those words. Now, that's important 
Because the commands we read in Scripture today, for some, are hard. It can feel a little bit like that, shut up and listen. We all struggle with various commands in Scripture. For some, it might be these. For others, it might be other, script, other commands. Just kind of, ugh. But knowing the heart of the God who says them to us changes everything. It changes how we hear them. And so in our passage today, God is going to talk to us about how women adorn themselves, verses 9 and 10, and how they listen, verses 11 to 15. And in both of those commands, it's really important for us to see the heart of God for us. So I just want to start with with reminding us of what the whole scriptures teach about God's heart for us before we dig into the passage. Because the Bible begins with God creating all of us, including women, in his own image. He makes man first out of the dirt And then from the side of man creates woman, made differently. And yet he's clear, both are equally made in my image. Both are given the charge of civilizing the whole world and spreading the fragrance of Christ, the fragrance of God to all his creation. This is is the noble call he has given men and women. And then throughout Scripture, you hear God's unique heart for women. Women who are sometimes overlooked or pushed to the fringe. And God says, no, it's not right. My heart is for the fatherless. My heart is for the widow. That woman who feels like nobody sees her, I see her. The barren woman because of me, can rejoice. And when God takes on flesh and comes into the world, he goes out of his way to show how certain women who might have been pushed to the side by society were actually core to what he was doing and he valued them. So you think of old Baron Elizabeth or the young maiden Mary. Or you think of Jesus interacting with that kind of sin-hardened Samaritan woman at the well. Or a prostitute. Always opening his heart wide to women who are in need. That is God's heart for us. Women, that is God's heart for you. Nowhere is it more clearly seen in what Jesus came to earth to do. To rescue you, to rescue all of us from the sin, the crud, the rebellion that is in our hearts, that alienates us from our Father. He came to restore us, so he actually went to the cross, the scriptures teach, and took our guilt, our the penalty we deserve, the consequence we deserve upon himself. 
so that we could be forgiven and restored to a whole relationship with our Father and to be able to enjoy eternity with Him in all that He promised as opposed to eternity under His wrath. That is how much our God loves us. That is how He views us. So whatever command it is that can sometimes be hard for us, we've got to hear it as coming from that heart. There's certain people, they can kind of say whatever they want to you because you, you know they love you. That's who God should be for us. So with that as kind of a really important backdrop, let's look at the commands here given to women. Last week we looked at the commands given to the men. This week we look at the commands given to the women and we look first at how women are to adorn themselves. Verses 9 and 10. When he talks about how women are to adorn themselves, he kind of makes this, he talks about modesty, but he does it through kind of two levels of comparison. So level one, instead of adorning themselves, well, he says, adorn yourselves with respectable apparel, with modesty, self-control, instead of braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. So it's, Kind of pretty straightforward. Dress modestly, respectably, instead of with this kind of flamboyant stuff, the showy stuff, right? But, but there's a second level. It's kind of a surprise. You, you, you could just end there. But there's another comparison. So we now, instead of addressing level two, instead of addressing, or addressing with uh, gold, pearls, braided hair, costly attire, now, instead, we are to dress with What? with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see where he's leading? It's not that the first level is inaccurate. That's true. But it's kind of like scaffolding, pointing to the real focus of what God's after. Our inward appearance, our inward adornment. You know, it's easy um, to say, okay, we're going to make a list of rules, and these are the rules. Everyone has to dress this way, do, 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 do. It's interesting. God doesn't do that. I mean, he mentions a few specifics, but, like, that's not the whole list. It's not like, well, as long as you don't have gold in your hair, you can dress however you want. That's not, that's not what this is about, right? We can see by this scaffolding where it's going that it's God saying, I value more than just how you physically look. I think the real value is who you are, what kind of woman you are. Now, that means he's calling women to dress and adorn themselves in such a way that reflects that their ultimate value of, of, how, of the kind of beauty they, they think is important is the beauty of a godly woman, godly character. You see, what is considered uh, appropriate attire in that sense is going to vary in different cultures. Some cultures, you dress a certain way and people think, oh, they're really consumed with their outward appearance. Other cultures, that exact same outfit wouldn't communicate that. It also can vary a little bit with personality. 
You think of the girl who you know, does all of life with a certain flair, and another girl who's a little bit more bookish and reserved. The way they reflect that modesty is going to be a little different, which is why the Bible doesn't take pains to say, and your skirt length needs to be exactly this length, and your hair needs to look exactly this way, and this kind of material is appropriate, and this level of tightness, or whatever it would be. It doesn't get into all that. It's saying you've got to know the heart behind this, which is to reflect to the world that we have totally different values. You know, our world is bombarding us and telling us that much of what makes a woman have worth is her physical appearance. And God says, that is not what is beautiful according to me. You don't have to measure your worth by the size of your waist. Or about how many likes your selfie got on Instagram. Or about what you think you look like when you look in the mirror. Instead, you want to be someone who who sees your beauty based on how the Holy Spirit is coming and transforming you to be more and more like Jesus. I just want to say a quick word to the young men here. Some young men, even very young, elementary age, maybe a few of you, middle school, high school, and then a little bit older too, single men. It's good for us. It'll be good for you to embrace God's beauty standards. Look for a woman who's beautiful based on what God says, not just what the world says or what appeals to your flesh. It'll serve you well. Don't just give lip service to it, but it'll also bless your sisters here. The single women pick up on what the single men value, and if you give lip service, oh, I, godly women, godly women, but then the only one ever you, you ever pay attention to is you know, the, the gorgeous girl, they pick up on that. And it can be a real encouragement when the men say, this is what I value what God values, and communicate that. So I want to encourage you in that. Now, when you think of of, um, this passage, one of the things I've talked about last week and even the weeks before is God's heart in this passage is a heart that all people come to know Jesus. He's telling us how to behave within the church because he wants the church to be a place that reflects what Jesus is like and what his kingdom's like, what his gospel's like. And so, there's this beautiful opportunity for the women of this church. When someone comes in who's not a follower of Christ and they join in, they should say, there is something different about the women of this church. They're about something totally different than what the world values. They've got the world's values and they've turned them upside on their head. They are rooted in something different. They find their worth and their value in something different. It's countercultural. They, they flaunt their obedience to God's kingdom instead of their physical appearance. And, and when the world comes in and sees that, it tells them something. The gospel's real. There's something different here. So how do the women adorn themselves? 
verses 9 and 10. First command. We do it with modesty, self-control. Pointing to the good works that God's prepared for us. But God has something else to say as well to the women. It's not just how they adorn themselves, but how they learn. How they learn. And in verses 11 and 12, there's a, a key word there. Begins and ends with the word quiet. So it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, what, this two, what these two verses say is actually pretty unambiguous. It's pretty straightforward. And it's keyed on that word quiet, right? It's important we understand what that word quiet is saying because back in verse 2 of our chapter, it's not just women who are called to live quietly. Same word here. It says that we pray in a certain way so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. In other words, when God is emphasizing quiet, he's not talking about the absence of sound. He's talking about a demeanor of our life, a settledness, a peaceableness, a dignity with how we conduct ourselves. The first aspect in verse 11 that it draws out with quietness is with all submissiveness. Submissive is not a word that's very popular in the day of our in our day and age, is it? But it's interesting that for the people of God, male and female, submission is something that's beautiful and good and commended. Because the scriptures teach God made an ordered world. There is an order to the way God made his world. And we as Christians embrace that order. As followers of God, we embrace the order that God's made. And that means we are submissive people, ultimately submissive to God. But all of us are under varying levels of authority. And we are all called to be submissive. And so there is to be a quietness that has a submissiveness to it within the church. Women, as you learn within a church, are you abrasive and brash? Are you a usurper, an underminer of the teacher or the elder? Do you learn with a certain eagerness to be shaped by what God's saying as opposed to kind of chafing at what God's word is saying through the teacher. Now, God wants women to be eager learners. It's good in an interactive environment to ask questions as long as it's done with a certain quiet spirit. It's good to examine the scriptures, say, is this really true? I mean, the Bereans did that, and we're praised for it. It's important to be eager learners, 
Jesus commends Mary for sitting at his feet to learn the scriptures. So we're to be people who are, who are eagerly joining in and, and engaging our hearts and minds with what's being taught. But we do it with a, a quietness that reflects we trust God's order for the world. We have a submissiveness. Quiet is also attached with verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is really where the word of God goes against the grain of the prevailing culture. And so I just want to make uh, four quick, but I think really important, textual observations about this command. The first is this comes in a passage that is about the local church. So if you remember chapter 2 and chapter 3, together form a unit, and it ends at the end of chapter 3 by saying, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things, this is verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So, these commands are talking about what happens within the local church. These are not universal statements about all of life. Second observation on the word teaching. Now it's true that just like our English word, the word teaching in Greek can have all sorts of meanings. But within 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, as well as the book Titus, which is all very similar, we call them the pastoral epistles because they're written to pastors, the word teaching is consistently used as a kind of authoritative teaching of God's word, teaching doctrine. And so when we hear the word teaching here, it's particularly talking about an authoritative teaching over men, where you're handling God's word. That's important because... In Acts 18.26, you have a woman alongside her husband who teaches a man, Apollos, better the ways of God. In Colossians 3.16, we are called to teach one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. certainly includes women. In 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about prophesying within the church. And... It talks about singing within the church, and it talks about praying within the church. And some of those things are things that God says women participate in that in a way that builds each other up. So this isn't saying any capacity of teaching or talking from God's word within the church is wrong. Rather, it's similar to what we call preaching today, something where there's a strong authoritative teaching, thus saith the Lord, from God's word, for one. That's how the word teaching is used in the pastoral epistles. It's important to note. Third, important to note that the reason given for these commands is how God created the world. We're going to get, get into that a little bit more further into the sermon, verses 13 to 15. 
But, but when the reason is given for these commands, it's rooted in how God created the world. That's important because there are people today who will say the commands here were given to address a specific issue of unruly women in Ephesus. But when the scriptures themselves give the reason for why the command's given, it does not root it in a cultural situation in Ephesus. Rather, it roots it in how God has created the world. Which is further reinforced when in 1 Corinthians 14... And 1 Peter 3, you have similar teachings given in different contexts. So this is something that God is saying, not just isolated for that time, but is a, a universal principle for his people in all times. The fourth textual observation I want to make is that God focuses on function more than office. In other words, he doesn't say, I do not permit a woman to hold the office of elder or pastor. Instead, he fun focuses on the function of those roles, teaching God's word with authority, elder-like authority within the church. That's important because there are some churches today that will say, okay, we're going to allow women to stand up and preach. We're going to allow women to serve in kind of a, a capacity of, of, that's elder-like over the church. We're just, it's okay because we don't call them pastor. It's okay because we don't call them elder. But God's saying, what's more important here is the function. What, what are they actually doing are they functioning like an elder? Are they filling that headship role within the church? So, based on those observations, I hope we can see that this is talking about within the local church. God is saying that women are not to teach the Bible with authority to men, and they're not to exercise elder-like authority over men. That's, that's what this is calling us to. Now, that can feel, I think, for some, like God's saying, shut up and listen. I can feel like, am I valued? Am I important? But I want you to know God's heart for you, even as you hear those things. He doesn't give these commands because he doesn't think you have worth. He knows he loves you. He's for you. He knows your value. What he says is good for us. I think of a dad who once told me he basically was rejecting this, this command because he said, I don't want to limit what my daughters can do. I don't want to limit what my daughters can do. I feel that sometimes. But it's interesting because all of us limit our daughters in some ways. Tell them, stay away from drugs. Tell them, don't be the kind of woman who belittles and demeans others. We tell them, 
don't find your worth in what a boy thinks about you. Why do, why do we tell them that? Trying to limit them so they, they don't get to experience the drug-induced high and what that's like? We're trying to rob them of the opportunities that if you're willing to kind of step on people as you climb the ladder that you might be able to achieve? Do we not want them to have the boy of their dreams? We place those limits because we we know God's ways are good. That it's for their thriving and for the good of society as a whole when they pursue those things. And the teenager might not like that at the time. But dad and mom say it anyways because this was good for them. I think the command can be a little bit like that. Now, I do understand that for the first time in the history of the world, our culture and our prevailing mores have finally gotten everything right. We're we're the first people who can look on everybody else and show all the errors in everybody else but have gotten everything right to the point that we can tell God that he's wrong. I get that. Of course, there's so much hubris in that, right? It's wrong. If you go back at other chapters in the history of our world, They thought they had the corner on truth as well. And in those cultures, women were degraded. Women were oppressed. Women were treated as second class. And sometimes those attitudes and values even saturated the church. And in those days and ages, the scriptures were needed to prophetically rebuke the church and correct it. And to say, the view of women that prevails in our culture is wrong. And it did so. Today, our tendencies are different. We want to androgenize male and female Make it seem like we are no different from one another. We are basically just interchangeable. And then, when we do that, we say that the distinct role of headship within a family or a church doesn't belong to men. And when God has called them to lead sacrificially, giving themselves, lovingly pouring themselves out to protect and to provide for their family, that's not a role distinct for men. It's just androgenize everything. And it might be that that actually is also damaging in ways that we are blind to. If we can say, yes, the, the, the word of God needed to be prophetically correcting them back then, we need to be humble enough to say, maybe the word of God needs to be prophetically correcting us now. I have a friend named Anna who, with her husband, leads a, uh, 
a relief organization that functions all around the world, working with local churches to provide relief for all sorts of um, humanitarian issues. And I was talking to her um, a while back about this issue of, of male headship and how that gets fleshed out, and she, she just talked at a real street level. She said, look at the cultures that are matriarchal, where the women are dominant. She says, when I go into those cultures, the women do everything, and the men just sit around and do nothing, often besides drink. She says, in those cultures, I need to help them see, you know, men have an important role to play and to lift that up so that things can be rectified. I'm not saying I have it all figured out exactly why God designed it the way he did. I'm just saying that sometimes when we are so confident that our culture's got it wrong and, or our culture's got it right and God's got it wrong, maybe we need the corrective of God's word. And so, God calls for a certain quietness, a quietness that's submissive, a quietness that says, I'm not teaching, exercising authority over a man as I learn. I want to say a word to the men. There are some men who use a verse like this to justify their abuse of authority. Authority within the scriptures is consistent how it's spoken of. And it's something God entrusts to people that they can steward it to bless those who they are over. So they give themselves sacrificially to lift them up, to point them to God to provide protection for them, to lay down their life for their good. That's what authority is biblically. And so if you are somebody who uses the authority to make yourself fat, to get your own way, to puff yourself up, and then you use a verse like this as a club over other people's head to say, you have to follow me. I'll just say, be warned this morning. I don't think Judgment Day is going to be a good day for you unless you repent. So be careful, men, of invoking this verse to get your way, to wield your authority. Of course, as I said, these verses are rooted in a grounds, a, 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 a reason for why God is, or why God's giving these instructions. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 15. Now, when you read verses 13 to 15, they can be a little bit, uh, I don't know, confusing. Is God saying women are gullible, prone to deception? What is this about being saved through childbearing? What's that all about? 
Well, actually, I think these, these reasons or, or these, this ver- these verses, verses 13 to 15, are pretty straightforward when you just map them onto the original Genesis story. If you read them not mapped onto that, it can be a little bit confusing. It can be like, what's it talking about? When you just look at what, what, how the story of Genesis plays out in the first three, four chapters of Genesis, it's pretty much summarizing what happened. So in the Genesis account, Adam is created first, which is important because God gives him a command... He says, you shall not eat. You can eat from any tree of the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. He gives Adam that command before Eve is created. After God gives that command to Adam, Eve is created. So even in how God created the world, that very opening scene, the woman couldn't teach God's word to man. Only the man could teach God's word to the woman. Now, we can guess at why that is. The Bible actually doesn't tell us. But what it does repeatedly enforce is that it was intentional, that the way God made things was intentional. Now, I do think it's interesting. Um, We as men are very dependent on women because all of us came from a woman. If women don't exist, men don't exist. But the very first woman came from a man. So there's a certain mutual dependence upon one another. And even as man's dependence on woman is something that is perpetuated until Jesus comes again, God also wants to show The inverse is also true. And it's particularly true here as it relates to teaching. That that order that was given matters. Now as that plays out, it's important because a serpent comes along and starts talking to Eve. We find out in the Genesis story that Adam was there when the serpent was talking to Eve and the serpent is telling Eve things about how the world works that go against what God has said. And Adam, who was the one who received the command from God, who has been entrusted with teaching what God has said to Eve, stands there silently saying nothing. And so... The woman's deceived. Emphasis being not, she's gullible, but emphasizing how her husband abdicated what he was charged to do. Because throughout Scripture, the one who's held accountable for bringing sin into the world isn't Eve, it's Adam. See, Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. But Adam knowingly defied God's commandment. So that in Genesis 3.17, when God is pronouncing judgment on Adam, he says, it's because you listened to the voice of your wife. In other words, instead of hearing my voice and teaching, you inverted it and said, 
okay, a serpent talked to my wife, and then my wife talked to me, and that's what I'm going to follow, going against God's word. But here's the thing. In the moment that God's pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve for their rebellion, for bringing sin into the world, he gives a promise. Salvation is going to come. The serpent's head will be crushed. And how's it going to come? Those of us who are with us through the Genesis series, how's it going to come? Through the seed of the woman, saved through childbearing. She, Eve, will bring about salvation through her childbearing. So it's interesting as you read Genesis 4 verse 1 and Genesis 4 verse 25, it talks about how Eve is actually looking in faith to her God to provide as she bears children. She didn't know how far along that salvation would come. So she's like, with the help of the Lord, I've given birth to a man. God has blessed me. He's bringing about offspring because she's looking to God in, in faith. The promise he's made. And from there, in, Genesis, or in 1 Timothy 2, it pivots from Eve and kind of generalizes for all Eve's daughters and says, you know the seed that eventually came to be our salvation? Jesus, who was born from Eve? You can know that same salvation if you, like Eve, have faith in God's promises and bear fruit of that faith with love and holiness and self-control. And so it returns full circle. Again, having faith like Eve and then being adorned like Eve. So God roots his command, or the commands here for how we're to behave are rooted in how God's designed the world. And there's something good and right about how he's designed the world. And in his design, God intended for women to play a key role and bringing about salvation. And then the daughters of Eve, as they embrace that same faith that Eve showed, bring about, or, or find themselves knowing the same salvation. Which is great news. I love, I love how God works. I don't know if you uh, ever have walked into a classroom Think of maybe a, a junior high or a, a high school classroom. It doesn't take long in walking into that classroom to see what the teacher's like. You walk into that classroom and there's a certain buzz of excitement and activity, and yet it's orderly and, and things are done in a certain way. and People are, are learning and, and enjoying the learning process but it's not chaotic and out of control. You can tell that's a really good teacher. You don't have to be in there long. Walk into another classroom and it's like a mess. Kids are out of control. Certain, certain aggressive ones in the class kind of rule the roost. Or maybe another classroom you walk into. Very, very strict, but like kids are like... Mm-hmm. Not enjoying learning at all. Those are not good teachers. The analogy, of course, is 
to make the local church a little bit like Jesus' classroom. Remember, we are, we are a testament to what the gospel's like. And when somebody comes in from outside and sees Jesus' classroom, he sees what his kingdom is like, there should be an order to it, a beautiful God-ordained order that we all embrace in a way that serves others and loves others, and there's an environment of care and concern for each other. Love, submissiveness, holiness, good works. It's like God's classroom is a good classroom. I know some of you may still struggle with the commands that are here. It might be hard because they fly so much in the face of what the world says. If you need to talk more, process more, you can talk to one of the elders or their wives. We'd love to process through these things. One sermon might not address all your questions. But like I said at the beginning, all of us find certain commands hard, certain teachings in Scripture hard. And if God behaved and acted and thought exactly like us, he's probably not God. He's probably an idol we've created. But when you think about those things that Scripture says that are hard, it's so important that you know your Savior, that you know your God, you see what he's like, a God who loves, a God who gives, a God who's wise, a God whose ways are good, a God that can be trusted. And so God calls on the women of our church to adorn themselves in a way that shows they are rooted in who God is and what he values, as opposed to bodily appearance. And he calls on the women of this church to learn in such a way that there's a quietness and a deference to the male headship that God has established for our good. But in all of that, we see that God's ways are good. He can be trusted. We can look to him. Look to him like Eve, or like Sarah, or like Deborah, or like Ruth, or like Elizabeth, or like Mary, or like Priscilla, or like Phoebe, or like Ann Judson, or Susanna Spurgeon. Or Amy Carmichael. Or Lottie Moon. Or Judy Loveless. Women who knew God's ways. And trusted him. Knew that his ways were good. And as a result, were a bright light. A counter-cultural light that helped the gospel be seen with greater clarity.
Would you join me in prayer? Father, I'm so thankful for your word. Different than what we might write and how we might write it, but always good. Always correcting us and shaping us. And together we ask that you would shape our collective minds. That we yield to what you say in your wisdom instead of holding on to what we think in our wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.